You're listening to the Keon Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Vince McKee. Our guest today will be Tom Pritchard. You remember him from the Bonnie Donnas, also the Heavenly Bodies. He was a fixture with the WWF for quite some time and now trains young wrestlers along with Glenn Jacobs, better known as Mayor Kane. Sit tight, put your feet up, and grab something cold to drink. Up next, Tom Pritchard. All right, we're on live now with Tom Pritchard. I couldn't be more excited for this interview. Uh, Good stuff all the way around. I got to tell a real quick story before I bring Tom on. I went to the 1996 SummerSlam, one of the bigger pay-per-views, to come to Cleveland, Ohio at the time. That was only really the second one we had during my childhood. And he came in with the Body Donnas. And I remember, to a four-way match. And uh, his partner that night, Chris Candido, Skip, had a neck brace on. So, uh, you know, Tom had to do basically all the work that night. But it, it was still just so cool to see him. For whatever reason, I was a Body Donnas fan. And I uh, just absolutely loved the gimmick all the way around. So, enough of me talking. Let's bring him on. One of my favorites as a kid, Tom Pritchard. How are you, sir? Uh, Vince, how are you? I'm doing great, thanks. Um, hey, absolutely. Um I know you've you've had a lot of matches in your career, but just off the top of my head, do you do you remember coming into Cleveland for that SummerSlam with uh, Chris being banged up? Well, I, I do because Chris had actually broke his neck in Madison Square Garden prior to that. So uh, yeah, it was it was a pretty difficult time, and um, uh, it, it was a horrible gimmick. It was a horrible time in life. So so we're. Um, Let's see, oh for two right now, I guess. But uh, no, 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 man. It, yeah, I do remember. It was just the the timing and uh, the body donos was like a dark cloud in my life and my career. But I do remember uh, Chris breaking his neck in Madison Square Garden and still making the towns and and um, uh, putting the neck brace on. But I'm not so sure he told the office that he broke his neck. I, I just think it was known between us because once once they heard he had the neck brace on or saw him at SummerSlam, I think there was a, there was a movement to get him out of the ring. So I do remember that, though. I understand that completely. Well, it's been great talking to you. You have a good day. No. Yeah. <laughs> I'm already over to you. I just need to shut yeah, the hell up I here. Know, man. No, no, it's, it's all good. It's all good. We all have those days. Unbelievable. It happens. Hey, listen. Yeah. Um, all joking aside, though, uh, we're going to talk about your career, but I, I do. I, I want you to tell us a little bit, um, you know, about what you're doing today because I think it's so cool. Uh, running the wrestling school, you know, with, with Glenn Jacobs. How did that come about? It's just amazing. I know you've had a long history as a trainer, but how did you put all this together? Well, it, this happened uh, during the time Glenn was starting to uh, campaign for Knox County Mayor here in Knoxville, Tennessee. And we were having lunch, uh, just talking about various things. And I told him I was going to do a camp somewhere. And he got to thinking, um, why don't we open a school here in Knoxville? I had done it before. Pardon me, here in Knoxville, but um, it just didn't work out. Uh, The problem with running a wrestling school is a lot of people say they want to do it, and a lot of people uh, promise they're going to show up, but once they get involved, they they figure out, pardon me, Man, it's it's the weather is horrible here. I've been uh, choking on more. Anyway, once they, they show up and figure out that, you actually have to fall down. You actually have to learn something. There actually is a method to our madness. Um, 
not very many want to stick it out. So I told Glenn, uh, I, I don't know uh, if it would be worth it, but he, he, he said, think about it. And I did. And um, so we eventually started. We were going to have our date uh, in January 2019. Uh, come to find out, Glenn won the election as Knox County Mayor, and we opened our school, the Jacobs Pritchard Wrestling Academy, in uh, January 2019. And uh, our, our deal is to run five days a week, uh, 6 to 10, 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. Um, every day, uh, have the weekends off, and uh, see what happens. And... Uh, Thank goodness we, we've been successful so far up until uh, this year when, when that dreaded 2020 decided to, uh, sure. yeah, throw a monkey wrench in, in everybody's plan. So uh, it was just one of those things out of the blue talked about and said, let's go for it with Glenn's name, uh, obviously. And uh, I have some reputation. I have a reputation of training a couple, couple of guys here and there. So. Uh, so far, it's been pretty cool, and and we are going on our second year. We have fourteen people this going around, and uh, it's been going great so far. What's the um, and first of all, you have more than a reputation of training a few people. You've trained some of the greats, and we'll get to that in a bit. But uh, so the four, the class of fourteen you have right now, I have to ask, how many men, how many women? Uh, right, right now we only have fourteen uh, guys. We've trained women. Oh my God! The first class I had two. Uh, the, the the other classes I, I we've had all throughout we've had five I believe six women come through. You know, and in the, the years the years you've been doing this, I have to ask, and this is not even on my list of questions. I'm just you know I I'm inclined to ask this question. So when you you know when you're training these classes, and when you did it with the WWF, and, and now with your own school. How quick into it, you know, how soon do you notice, okay, we might be able to pair these two guys together, or these two women, but usually these two guys, and I think they might be they might be better off as a tag team, or is that something you never even address? You just want to make sure they're, they're, they could go as a singles, they know the moves, they know how to stay safe, they know how to protect their opponent, or do you actually start to plan, hey, this guy's character could be this, and they could be a tag team or whatnot? A lot of times, it's it's the guys who come up with it. We have a tag team right now called the Brothers of Seduction, <laughs> with uh, Cam the Prince and Jake Tucker the Mother Lover, and they came up with the tag team, uh, came up with the name, came up with the concept, came up with a gimmick, came up with some ideas, and they enjoy teaming together. Um, sometimes it happens, but most of the time, I want to make sure they understand the basics and fundamentals. The basics the fundamentals never go out of style. It's still blocking and tackling. You're still hitting the ball over the fence. You're fielding. Uh, you're still practicing. And you have to hone and you have to sharpen those fundamentals and basics uh, on a regular basis. Otherwise, uh, if you have no foundation, you're going to crumble. So I don't necessarily look for it. It has to happen organically for it to be really good or, or great dare I say, and uh, it, it, it's one of those things that we create as we go along. Uh, for instance, last night we did promos, and one of the guys happened to mention he did urban, chore urban choreographed 
dancing and i wasn't sure what that was so during promos last night i we we did some vignettes and i asked him to incorporate that in their uh two minute vignette and he did so sometimes we just find out what uh other talents people have and if they have a uh, proclivity i guess or <laughs> an inclination to team with someone or they have a uh uh, a natural can or bond, they they try it, and uh, I always tell people try a bunch of stuff and keep what works. So that's how that goes. Oh, absolutely. So uh, one last one last question for you about this before we get into your career, because I just find this to be so fascinating, and I, I feel you know, and I'm not trying to suck up to the guest or anything, but guys listening at home and women listening at home, you know, Tom really is one of the premier trainers in the in the history of professional wrestling, and when you go back and, and look at who he trained, who he's been around. Um, it's just amazing uh, the list of names and and what he could do to to help young men and women. So I have to ask you this: What are your thoughts on the NXT Performance Center? Is that something that you kind of wish was around when you were there? And is that a good thing for wrestling, or is, do you think maybe it's not the greatest thing because these guys should learn how to travel the to towns and pay their dues and things of that nature? Because right now there's a, there's a lot of split down the middle on that. Yeah, I, I I do. I think it's good and bad. I not good and bad. I just think it's certainly different because it's not the same world. It's not the same culture. It's it's certainly just uh, um, not the same in, in every aspect of, of the way we learned how to work and how to do professional wrestling. So uh, you have to evolve and you must change with the times, no doubt about it. But um, the difference, I think, is in the sense that the, the performance center is is great. And if you can't learn there, then then you can't learn because they do have some of the greatest coaches and, and some of the greatest technology and access to all the matches, any uh, match study or any anything that, that you want to look at concerning either professional wrestling slash sports entertainment slash anyone who came through the business in the business around the business someone there will have knowledge of it and i think that's very very important to know the history of the of professional wrestling but i also feel there is a certain amount of struggle and uh dirt you need to get under your fingernails and uh in a sterile environment that doesn't always happen but but at the same time we're, we're in 2020 we're not 1920 and uh I think bigger, better, faster is a great option. Um, but there is something to be said, I think, of learning in a non, no air conditioned building and, 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 and having to, uh, uh, you know, get up and turn the channel or turn the TV manually, you know, without the remote control, without the luxuries that we have. But once again, why not use everything you have and, and make it as modern and accessible um, and and better for, for everyone coming along? I'm not one of these guys that say, you know, back in my day, uh, it was always the best. It wasn't always the best back then, but it was it was certainly one way to get an education and uh, weed out the ones who really wanted to do this for the reasons 
that I feel yeah you really have to to you really have to love this to be successful in my opinion and if you don't it's going to be pretty tedious and pretty hard on your body and your mind because um, back back in back in my day uh, we, we, we were going in working towns every night of the week we were going by car these days again that model does not exist anymore so um, we can't do it the way I did it we can't do it the way a lot of us did it because the world has changed and we have to adapt to it so uh, short answer to your to your question, I think it's great that the Performance Center is there. I think it's a great, great uh, way to learn professional wrestling. And um, I, I think you should take complete advantage of it. The, the training methods get more modern uh, as we progress. And uh, hopefully the business will get better as, as those training methods uh, improve and progress. Well, it's interesting that you know you say these things because I agree with everything you said. You know, myself being thirty-eight years old, you know, I, I remember the days like you just said. A great analogy of getting off the couch, walking on the TV, and actually turn that little button there to switch it. I remember having a phone on the wall where you had a, a rotary phone where you had to you know circle it around. I remember answering machines. I remember I remember you would have a quarter in your pocket at all times if you had, if you drove somewhere in case you needed a pay phone. So yeah, I mean, as technology and as things have gotten better. Obviously, it's been it's been great, but yeah, I mean, these guys they don't know what it's like to work a, a real hard show and get paid ten dollars at the end of the night or twenty five dollars in an envelope. So yeah, those things have definitely changed. You know, I've spoken with um, in the last two weeks, you know, Tito Santana, Hector Guerrero, and like you just said, you know, they need to. These guys would have to learn, you know, making the towns, making those towns, sharing the hotel rooms with four or five guys, you know, in a car things of that nature, you know, one last thing I'll say is it, it jumped out to me last night, um, you know, watching AEW, and Jim Ross says, you know, Cody is working real hard, he wrestles once a week, he defends that belt once a week, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, wait a second, I'm like, this industry was born on, you know, the NWA and guys like Dusty Rhodes and Ric Flair wrestling six times a week, sometimes seven times a week, so it is interesting what we accept now compared to the way it was, would you agree with that? Well, here, here, yeah, here, here's the other thing that no one uh, wants to look at. You know, again, our our, our way of thinking, our culture, and, and the world in general not not just here in the U.S. but but all over the world. Uh, in, in those days of the NWA World Champion touring everywhere you go. Um, also, if you wanted to break into wrestling, it was such a closed society. You had to know somebody who knew somebody who might know somebody who has a friend whose mother might have had a drink with a guy who knows a guy who lived down the street from this <laughs> fellow who might have refereed a match for a backyard show. You know, so I mean, there, there were all these steps you had to take. And then once you got an opportunity <clears throat> to even get in a ring, these guys would either break your arm, pull your, your shoulder out of socket, break your leg. Uh, Eddie Graham and Hiro Matsuda broke Hogan's leg, Hulk Hogan's leg in Tampa when he went to go try out. And to his credit, Hogan came back and said, look, um, you know, you guys can either show me how to do it or I'm going to go somewhere else, but I know I got something here. And, uh, you know, there, there's something on YouTube also with Bob Roop stretching this guy. I mean, it's brutal and it's, it's uh, uh, 
uncomfortable to watch. It's disturbing to watch. But but this Bob Roop takes this guy and wrenches his shoulder out of the socket and you can hear the horrific screams and it's just it was one of those things that, that the old timers did to to prove this was real, to prove this was uh a lot harder than it looked. Well it's always been a work. People have always, it's always been exposed. This is nothing new. Uh, but yet this is the extremes. The, the old school guys went to back then. And when I got in, uh, you know, we, we, I was stretched. I, I was, you know, the Ron Starr and, and uh, Johnny Mantell put me in a headlock every night for, for a week and would bend my ear down and come back. It would be swelled up and back in the, in the shower, they would lance it with the razor blade. They did that three nights in a row until it just stayed hard. And, and I thought that was part of paying the dues because um, they were trying to show you, uh, you know, this wasn't meant for everybody. And it was, uh, you, you had to love life on the road. It wasn't always air conditioned buildings and dressing rooms and hot water. And, the, and, and there were some hardships that went along with it, but, uh, you know if you were made from this cloth or you were cut from another cloth. And uh, some people got into it and found out that this wasn't the life they wanted to live. And other others like us, man, we couldn't wait to do it again every single night. So um, you're right. There's a lot of elements that don't exist today. And I, I, I can't speak to the fact that I think there there's it's a better chocolate cake because they're they're making it today with different ingredients it's the same cake it's just uh, in, instead of using this butter they're using a different brand whatever you want to say it, it, it's you're still going to get a chocolate cake but does it taste as good as it did when your mom made it 30 years ago I don't know uh, I've, I've read something that, that Brian Pillman Jr., who I think is a tremendous worker, I think he's got a, a hell of a future ahead of him, but he was talking about how we like to romanticize the past, and, and of course, sure we do, we look back a, a lot more fondly on it maybe than it really was, but at the same time, you know when you watch the match and you got the goosebumps and the vibe and the feeling of a darkened arena and i grew up in the sam houston coliseum from the time i was 10 years old and i started working for paul bosch uh, i actually started taking pictures when i was 12 for a gong magazine in japan at ringside thanks to paul bosch and i started working in paul bosch's office in the summers at 15 and i had this passion and this love for professional wrestling i had the chance to see every Friday night in the Sam Houston Coliseum. This is when people were still allowed to smoke indoors and and the house lights would go down, the ring lights would come on and by the intermission, but especially by the main event, the smoke would be billowing above the, the ring and it had this ambiance and this atmosphere and you had guys like Johnny Valentine and Wahoo McDaniel go out or Harley Race and Terry Funk or Jose Lothario, the great Malenko, they would go out and, and it would be this contest, it would be this uh, 
Uh, yes, they were working, but when they went out, they believed. They had passion. They had feeling. And the old Kid Rock thing is, if it looks good, you'll see it. If it sounds good, you'll hear it. If it's marketed right, you'll buy it. But if it's real, you'll feel it. And those guys felt it. And then you would get the goosebumps. And even though, even the people who knew it wasn't working and, and knew it wasn't what it was appeared to be, for that moment, they got lost in it. Today, it seems to be a bunch of choreographed um, uh, flip-flop and fly, which isn't always bad because back then we also had uh, the Mill Moscaris, the Jimmy Snookers, and things like that. But they put it in the right place, and they told a story. And, and it was more of a feeling thing back then because those guys felt it too. So that, to me, is the biggest difference. That it, It's basically, again, you know, it's, 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 it's professional wrestling, uh, but you have so many things that vie for your entertainment, and you, you have the video games, you have anything at your fingertips, the internet. Um, my gosh, we didn't have that back then. So you had to get into it, and, and wrestling wasn't everybody's cup of tea, even just watching it, but when you watched it back then, it was it was a lot more uh, of the guys going out there and being authentic. And, and I, I use that word a lot because too many guys are playing a part these days as opposed to being that part, being authentic, being real, think, shoot but work and nobody really comes with that context or nobody starts with that premise. So they're starting from the, from the place of oh, this is all fake and phony and everybody knows it. So I have to get to, to play a part. Am I playing a heel? Am I playing a good guy or a baby face? Or are you being this? Are you really this? It used to be the guys were just an extension of themselves with the volume turned up when they went to the ring. Nowadays, it's just the guy playing a part yeah, a lot of times, not all the time because Brock Lesnar is Brock Lesnar no matter how you cut it he's the most authentic guy in the business today I think wow that's an unbelievable answer thank you uh, <laughs> I, could, I could sit here and listen to you talk all day and I, I still have not asked you a single question about your career so I want to make sure I do that um, so you gotta cut me off if I keep going on man because sometimes I can't stop yeah this is amazing no this <laughs> this is really good um, you know, so let, let's start there though. You mentioned it already. It was, it was going to be my first question. What got you interested in a career in pro wrestling? But I think you already nailed that. So, you know, once you became a part of it, you learned the ropes, you were growing up with it. Um, you know, I read somewhere where you wrestled, you know, with, uh, people like Gene, Gene and Mike LaBelle early on, you know, were they influential at all to you or what, who were some of the names to you who really taught you the, the, the name of the game? I, 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 truly believe um once i paul bosch obviously was a huge influence on me growing up and and, and paul was a great man he he gave uh, both bruce and i an opportunity to to not only work in the office um and and give us an education uh that would help us figure out if we truly wanted to do this. And my God, once we, we got closer to it and, and saw even the warts and, and uh, behind the scenes, it was even more intriguing, fascinating. But I, I think uh, probably the guys that would help me 
or or really made me see the business the way it was would have to be the Armstrongs. And Bob Armstrong was a huge influence. Uh, Brad Armstrong was my best friend. And uh, he, he, they, they say if you can come out of the business with, with one person as a friend, uh, you know, that's a lot. And Brad was my was the one guy that, that we just connected and, and had uh, had that bond, had a lot of things in common. Uh, but I, I think everywhere I went, I don't know that I went any place that I really hated it. Everywhere I went, um, I, I enjoyed being there because I, I enjoyed doing what I was doing. I got to do it every single night, go out there, and it was fun. Uh, and then when it stops being fun, then you know it's time to to, to step away or at least um, – move over uh you don't have to get out completely because i don't really think if you if you truly have a passion for the business i don't think you ever really are able i think it's if, if it's in your dna it is and uh you can't just walk away and never look at it again hear about it again think about it again because it's just in you and it's in me for sure so i think uh, everyone i guess i could say i've, I've ever had contact with is has influenced influence me one way or another that's for sure you know um so I'll, I'll tell you another thing here and uh fans of the show know this and people who have read my books and and so on and so on i grew up poor um my family did not have a lot of money my dad worked full-time he was a bus driver for 35 years uh but my mom was sick real sick and we um we just didn't have a ton of money so we didn't have cable we didn't really have a lot of luxuries but we had this tv in our house that was able to pick up a station that got us wrestling from like Memphis, Tennessee, and different and in different spots down south. And there was two promotions that this TV was able to pick up over the years when I was a kid. One of them was U. It was called USWA, and the other one, a little bit later on, a few years later, was called Smoky Mountain Wrestling SMW. And I remember being a kid and being enthralled by these two shows. I was able to watch that. And my Saturday morning wrestling, you know, because all we had was the free TV stations. And that was incredible to me. And I wanted to ask you, for you, what was it like, you know, what was the fan base in Tennessee? And I think it's amazing that now you're there again and, and you're teaching. But for that area of Tennessee, and we're going to get to, you know, SMW and uh, USWA in a bit. But I wanted to ask you about Continental Championship Wrestling and Continental Wrestling Federation. You know, really, where you, you were seeing those Tennessee fans what were they like? Because to me, watching at home on TV, they seemed very passionate passionate and knowledgeable. Well, yeah, Continental Wrestling was out of Alabama and Pensacola, but you're correct. And it was the same uh, basic foundation and fan base. Uh, Southern wrestling fans, or as you say, Southern wrestling fans. Mm -hmm. but, but the Southern fans are certainly passionate, even to this day, which is kind of cool. Um, but back then... They were they were still a holdover from uh, I, I want to say the seventies, the eighties, and the early part of middle nineties. Uh, you had those holdover old school wrestling fans, and the reason they were so passionate is because in the South, and and here was the the distinction back then that a lot of people describe the difference between uh, the southern style and the northern style uh, was 
on the east coast you know the garden the the, the northeast uh, style of wrestling if you will was kick and punch and, and they had a lot of bigger guys and it was a lot of brawling and not a whole lot of uh, high spots but in, in the south <clears throat> excuse me they had we had uh, high spots and and there were times when uh, the guys would go out and to, in, in order to bring blood to the match, instead of using a foreign object or a blade, they would actually punch each other in the, in the eye or wherever it may be and, and make the guy have a black eye or, or hit him and cut him open for real. It was called the hard way. And, um, and people saw that because, uh, you know, again, the, the stereotypical Southern wrestling fan, a hardworking redneck fella coming in from a long, hard day on the, on the job, going into a bar, getting into a fight, knows what a real fight looks like. Not that anybody up north doesn't, but the point is um, he had some people who really wanted to get into it, weren't afraid to, to be vocal, be physical, if anything else. You know, Jim Cornette. Uh, was that guy who got so much heat because boy they hated that sissy boy and that mama boy and all that stuff so uh, that was I think where the passion came from was the guys went to the ring and and the guys believed it we had to feel it we knew it was a a work of course but we thought shoot but worked and uh, you would go out and, and you weren't playing a part when we went out we got to turn up the volume and have a lot of fun and that was so cool to be able to do that and the fans appreciated it too and there's nothing better and, and more uh i want to say satisfying rewarding whatever however you want to call it describe it then, then have an arena full of people uh feeling it with you and you can feel the energy you can feel the electricity in the air and it translated into the ring uh so that was that was a huge element of of getting that style over because the people reacted and Paul Bosch used the analogy of, I like to go fishing, but I also like strawberries. But when I go fishing, I put worms on the hook because I'm trying to catch fish. It's the same thing with the wrestling. If if you're trying to draw fans and they want to see uh, rough, you know, uh, the Texas death match, death match style or, or gimmick matches and, and blood and guts, you don't go out there and give them Luthez versus Jim Lundis. You know, you go out there and give them Bull Curry versus Johnny Valentine or, or Wahoo McDaniel versus Johnny Valentine or these guys who know how to fight. Make it look credible. Make it look presentable. Make it look authentic and the people will buy it. Uh, and Johnny Valentine always used to say they may not believe in wrestling, but they'll damn sure believe in me or I can make them believe in me. And every time Johnny went out there, uh, he started slow. He was methodical, but but every time he hit somebody, it would echo into the balcony and you would see the welts come up and you would see the red marks, you'd see the sweat fly. So there was no denying that they were making contact. So uh, wrestling fans got that, wrestling fans in the South especially, and they they uh, got into it. And there were many nights, you know, that was what people waited for, their wrestling. And, and they had the same seats every single week in that town and uh, loved to go and sit and drink beer or have fun or whatever they did. 
and uh, uh, that was that that was uh, an atmosphere and a vibe that uh, was was pretty prevalent in the eighties and and some of the nineties. You know, so we're gonna get to your, your career with the Heavenly Bodies, which took up a, a large chunk of it there <clears throat> with SMW and WWF. But before we do, I did want to ask you one last question about the USWA. A lot of big names came out of the USWA, and I would I would tell fans at home to go ahead and do your research on that. Um, it just the the amount of names, the good names from the USWA territories is just incredible. Who were some of the ones you enjoyed working with the most in the USWA? I have to say, uh, especially my last trip there, because I, I had made a few, <laughs> I had done a few tours of duty. In the USWA, the Memphis Territory wasn't the most uh, lucrative. That's for sure. Sure as hell, it wasn't going to get rich. Uh, but but they did have some good guys. And and the last time I was there, uh, I, I worked a program with Jeff Jarrett, who I think was an outstanding worker, an outstanding performer. Um, I also got to uh, work a lot around, be around uh, Steve Austin at, at that time. So uh, Jerry Lawler, of course, Bill Dundee, uh, man, Eddie Gilbert, uh, of course. There, there, were, there were a lot of people in in the Memphis Territory and, and USWA that, uh, you're right, came through. And um, we, we would, again, I think a lot of times, uh, you know, we look back on it and, and say, I liked working with this guy, I didn't like working with that guy. But, but everybody was good. It was a good experience uh, once you understood and once you learned how to tell a story and slow down. And everybody, when you start out, rushes and, and isn't quite sure how to tell a story. But everybody in Memphis at that time and, and the last the last time, I guess, in the, in the late 80s when I was in USWA, was pretty much on the same um, wavelength and on the same idea about how to tell stories, how to go out there and have a match, how to slow down or take your time and get into it. So I think everybody I worked with during that time pretty much was was a lot of fun. But I had some really good matches with Jeff, uh, Lawler, Dundee. Uh, <laughs> Eric Embry doesn't get a lot of credit for his booking, but and, and not a lot of people – Eric is Eric Embry is one of those guys. I think you love him or hate him. I loved him. He's a great guy to me. We had a good time, but he didn't look like your typical superstar at that time. But but he he did have some some decent ideas. I thought, and he could go out and he could uh, he could elicit emotion from the crowd. And and uh, we teamed as Texas versus Tennessee during that time, and I thought it went pretty damn good. We had a lot of good. We had a lot of fun. Like that. Yeah, I, I loved watching it. I'll tell you that. As a kid, I mean, it was just amazing to have wrestling on my television, and that was great. So, I've, this is something I've always wondered. Um, you know, after forming the Heavenly Bodies, originally with Stan Lane, you would eventually switch and team with Jimmy Del Jimmy Del Rey. Can you talk a little bit about that transition, going from singles to tag, and going from Stan Lane to Jimmy Del Rey? Well. Jim and Stan had come from Charlotte, and Jim's original idea, Cornette, uh, original idea was to bring the Midnight Express rock and roll to uh, 
Knoxville to Smoky Mountain. But Bobby Eaton had already signed a contract with uh, WCW. He just resigned and had a family. I think he signed a five-year deal, whatever it was. And I was um, in Memphis at that time. Uh, I'd been in Memphis maybe a year. And uh, Jim had called and asked if I would be interested in an opportunity uh, he was opening up a territory in Knoxville and uh, calling it Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Wanted the team Stan and I. Uh, but Bobby was his first choice. So again, the Midnight's uh, versus Rock and Roll just rehashing in this part of the country. But uh, I said, of course. Yeah, it'd be great. And I knew it was going to be some... Uh, growing pains in there. I knew we weren't going to come in and he uh, had big contracts. Who Again, it was a place to go work. And, and at that time, I was just, I was happy to be having steady work and, of course, sit under uh, the learning tree and the opportunity that Jim Cornette and Stan Lane were giving me. So Stan had already been in the business a while. He had been through the fabulous ones in Memphis. He, they, they had had great success and, and great success in Crockett territory. Now he's, he, he left with Jim. He walked out with Jim and um, getting ready to pioneer Knoxville again, pioneer East Tennessee in this part of the country. Well, uh, he was living in Charlotte and, you know, driving by himself, making the trips. And the houses, while they were fine and, and doing okay business, we certainly weren't doing WCW or WWE numbers. And and Stan had already been down that road. You know, even though we were working with rock and roll, even though we're uh the matches were <clears throat> pretty pretty easy. I mean Ricky and Robert were uh, fantastic to work with every night. That that was that was that was a night off. That was a dream job. But Stan just got to the point where uh, he was tired. He was tired of making the trips, you know, from Charlotte to Knoxville, and uh, so he he just decided he'd rather not, and he was going to retire. He, he he just I think he just dropped it on Jim one day, and we were in a bind, uh, and we needed somebody, and and. Kevin Sullivan was in the territory at the time, and he brought up Jimmy Del Rey's name, uh, Jimmy Backlund. And I had met Jimmy, oh, he came in a week, I think. Through He came through Alabama. He came through Continental Wrestling for like a week. Nice guy. You know, he, he seemed okay. But uh, that's how that came about. You know, we had nobody else. Everybody we knew was tied up with a contract or just just unavailable somehow and uh so jimmy came in and the first night he came in you know he came in with no tooth he was missing a front tooth and you know, had the had the belly and and red hair looked like howdy duty and everybody kind of looked like oh and but but the thing was when he started uh we came to find out he could work and and he he, he had a he, he could do some pretty good stuff. So uh, that came into play. So, but, but, you know, Jimmy was Jimmy and, and I certainly 
I, I, I take a lot, uh, a lot of time to get to know too. You know, I'm not the easiest guy in the world to just saddle up to next to the barn. So, well, now I am probably, but back then I was a little more guarded and, and yeah. more of a loner. And, yeah, you're not giving you're not giving me that impression, my man. We've we've talked for thirty minutes. I feel like I've known you for twenty years. But go ahead. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, but 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 I mean, I can do that. Oh, sure. but, but in business, in business, it's 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 a different story because you know I've got to be able to trust you, and if I can't trust you, um, I'm not. We're not gonna we're not gonna click. I mean, Michael sure. Michael Hayes and I had this conversation many years ago that that as a tag team, you really have to be a team in the ring and out the out of the ring, and uh, you know, Jimmy and I were were. were okay in the ring i thought we were great but outside the ring you know we we would go places and i'm i'm kind of an, an easy going guy when i walk into to a, an establishment if you will mm-hmm. if it's a bar restaurant whatever and i want to check things out <coughs> partner and you know jimmy's a little more extroverted and wants to let everybody know we're there and and who we are by god make sure you knew and i wanted to kind of chill out and just just check out the landscape and see how we're how we fit in and see where i might fit in over here and see what's going on over there and and you know so once once i established that we were two different people outside the ring. We did business inside, and uh, once it was done, you know, he had his people to travel with, and I pretty much either traveled by myself or, or on those rare occasions, would jump in the car with somebody. But uh, you know, we went along. We did what we did what we could do, and uh, uh, when the opportunities came up, we we did we had to do with those two so yeah and i thought you did them i thought you did them well i thought the whole concept to me was great having you know cornette as the mouthpiece like you said a guy like jimmy del rey kind of you know a little bit of a gut on him the missing tooth the whole thing with the red hair and it's like this guy's calling himself a heavenly body it just it's instant heat you know and to me i think that's why it works yeah Maybe the heat was backstage, but yeah, yeah. (laughs) So in in 1993, you know, you had two very high-profile matches, and you had said this just now, you know, it wasn't like the WCW numbers, it wasn't like the WWE, you know, at the time, F numbers, but now you had that chance, you know? So in in 93, um, you know, Jim Cornette brings you into the WWF about mid-July, maybe. I'm probably off on that, June or July, doesn't matter. That summer, you come in, and, you know, you get a really big match right off the rip against the, the Steiner Brothers at SummerSlam. Steiner Brothers, in, in my opinion, just my opinion, one of the top five tag teams of all time, legitimate wrestlers, you know. And then you, you go into the Survivor Series, and, and you have the classic rivalry with the Rock and Roll Express. So two big shows in a matter of three months with the WWF. What can you tell us about those matches and what sticks out the most about that entire experience? Because that really was the first big run that you had. Well, we we were supposed to do the do the same thing with WCW with Bill Watts. You know, we did the invasion with Rock and Roll Express um, at Center Stage, and and then Watts got fired. So uh, <laughs> shortly after that, due to due to some 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 events that happened. Um, my dad came in to visit us in, in Smoky Mountain. So 
we cut a promo with my dad, uh, Jim Cornette, Jimmy Del Rey, and myself, and my dad uh, cut this promo to send to Bruce. And, uh, they, of course, Cornette is, is, is being Cornette, and um, Bruce watches it with people uh, around, and they see it, and they get this idea to uh, book us at... SummerSlam, have a match for the Steiners at SummerSlam. But I knew, especially when, when I was being told, you know, I, I had the idea, my, my uh, spidey senses were tingling because I I knew they were looking for a spokesman for, I didn't know they were looking specifically for a spokesman for Yokozuna because uh, Yoko had Fuji and uh, you compare Fuji and, and Jim Cornette as, as mouthpieces and there's no debate. So, uh, anyway, um, we, we got the opportunity to go in, but, uh, again, it was, uh, to get Jim in there and move him away uh, and, and get him with Yoko. And, and that was fine. That was great because it's up to us to get over, uh, but I knew when we got there, and you're right, the Steiners are certainly one of the top five of all time and they were great. They, they were fantastic. And, uh, when, when we got there, we, we it was supposed to be a one-off and, uh, SummerSlam, we, we, we did it and laid it out, uh, their hometown, which certainly helped. It certainly helped. Yeah. Um, because the next match was in Boston at, uh, Survivor Series against Rock and Roll mm-hmm. and the crowd hated it. They were not into our Southern high spots. It was a Southern team. They sat there on their hands and even booed. It was like, Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So they let us know we weren't their, their, uh, cup of tea either, but it was a great opportunity. It was one of those things that, um, I, I knew, the game, I knew what it was. Uh, I just wasn't. I, I I didn't bring my uh, ball, and I wasn't prepared to to play the game that you have to play and what you have to do. And you really have to be uh, ambitious, and you have to be proactive. And and I was nowhere near that. I, uh, Jimmy and I, again, we were a great team. I thought when we went out and did what we had to do in the ring. Uh, but you have to you have to gel. You have to be on the same page. And I don't know that we were on the same page uh, once we got backstage or, or <laughs> away from the ring. So uh, it, was, it was a bittersweet experience. But once again, uh, we didn't come in expecting anything but a SummerSlam payoff. And and went to Survivor Series, and then I think we got signed right before we had a, we had a trip to Japan, I believe, in January or February of '97. And I think we signed right before we went to Japan because when we got over there, when we got to Japan for Baba, uh, Baba actually offered us a contract, and we told him we already signed with WWE. So I don't know. I don't regret it, uh, but I often wonder if if we could have stretched it out. I, I really don't know. But I th- actually, I, I think it was it was more the right thing to do. We were both getting older, and we should have we were looking at our opportunities in WWF at that time. But be that as it may, that's that's kind of how that came up. We we sent a promo and uh, as a rib, and that gave them the idea. Huh. 
we could sure use this guy as Yoko's spokesman and bring the team in too. Let's get what we can out of those guys. <laughs> and the rest is up to us, actually, man. And we just didn't, uh, we didn't follow through. Well, let me ask you this, you know, and, and this is unique to me and I don't, my, you know, my three favorite wrestlers <clears throat> of all time growing up as a fan and now a journalist, I respect them even more. And I think people are going to get uh, a hint pretty quickly. One of them, my all time favorite is Bret Hart, then, then Kurt Angle and then Chris Jericho. And if you look at them, all those guys are under probably six foot one, you know, you know, two twenty at the most, and and uh, you know, compact, legit, you know, wrestlers that could go and and, and have a match, A to Z. So in 1995, you were you were with the WWF, okay? And in 1995 and and in the 90, 1996, there was a big transition there. From the days of Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warriors and Macho Mans and the big burly guys into, you know, the Bret Hart's and the Shawn Michaels and the things of that nature, they were seeing a bigger picture and, and sure they still had The Undertaker and sure they still had, at that time, Kevin Nash, the big guys. But we saw that transition leading into the Monday Night Wars. Do you think, you know, when, when you look at, the, when you step back and look at the entire picture of the whole WWF versus WCW, Monday Night Wars and all that, do you think Vince McMahon knew what he was doing and knew that eventually it was going to work out because he was building the younger stars? He had guys who could actually move in the ring and knew that, hey, you know, we're transitioning to a little bit smaller, a little bit younger, while WCW relied on the money aspect of it all, and we're just going to try to sign big names and, and hope it works? I, I don't know if Vince uh, planned it that way. Uh, I just know that when we came in, the the trial, the steroid trial had just ended, and I, I think the spotlight on the bigger guys uh, was just being shifted to the smaller guys, also the more athletic guys, for that reason uh, mainly. But I also think once those guys like Brett, Sean, uh, and whoever else was, was there at the time, um, who wasn't as in, built in the, the Hogan mode or, or Nash mode or whatever it was, um, I think those guys were certainly ambitious and uh, uh, didn't mind stepping out, didn't mind voicing their opinion. And that's really what you have to be. You have to, you have to promote yourself. You have to have an ego. You have to have confidence. You must, you must, you must. Uh, you can be the greatest performer in the ring, but what we do in the ring is, is just a small portion um, of the recipe for success because you, there, there are so many parts to the business that, that nobody really realizes or talks about. They do, I think, now in the Performance Center, they, they cover all those aspects and they, co they cover all these things that, that are necessary. Um, they want college-educated people. They want smart people. They want people to uh, be creative, to, to be thinking, to, to, to be ambitious and, and uh, concentrate on the career, concentrate on what they can do to, to better the company, better themselves. And when you had Brett, you had Sean, I mean, that was a, 
a great rivalry and it's kind of like Stallone and Arnold you, you know they talk about it all the time if you know anything about that rivalry they were they were battling each other for the movies and battling each other and they would take shots at each other but it was out of respect but all those years it, there was this uh, I think uh, a legit uh, dislike or maybe even hatred at times, but but I don't think there was ever a lack of respect. And and the same might go with Sean and Brett, and they might have lost some respect along the way, but I think as it all uh, went down through the years, you, you've got to look back and say, both of them, I think both would say, um, that the, the respect was felt every time they stepped in the ring. You couldn't have the matches they had uh, unless there was a certain amount of trust, understanding, and respect uh, that went along with it. Because those guys were masters of their craft or what they did. And every time they stepped in the ring, uh, it was magic. And I think it was to show each other, you know, Brett's, Brett's going to show Sean, Sean's going to show Brett. You can't do this with anybody else. In fact, I'm going to show you I'm the best at working with you and I'll make this, I'll make you look better than you can ever look. And, and Brett was just saying the same thing back in his head. So yeah. I think, I think uh, along with, all the things that were happening with WWE after the big trial, um, you know, Vince put his confidence in Brett and Sean and the smaller guys because uh, that was what the fans were actually reacting to. And and Vince is a smart enough guy, obviously. He wouldn't be where he is unless he knew how to have smart people around him, surround himself with guys and people that 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 have his confidence to to bring the best for his business. And uh you know, Brett and Sean both had Pat Patterson's blessings and Bruce's blessings and whoever else was making decisions at that time. So uh whether Vince knew it or not, he knew enough to give them the opportunity to prove it. So you have to give him credit for that. You know, and here you are in a situation now where you're, you're teaching young athletes and, and trying to get them in the business. And I know you said early on that this was not the, the favorite part of your uh, career by any stretch, you know, being a part of that body down us gimmick. But are you able to teach, you know, your guys and use, uh, you know, Chris Candido and, and Tammy Sitch as an example of what could happen, you know, what bad stuff could happen. You could be unbelievable in the ring, but if you can't control your life outside of it, this is what could happen. And, and I'm not, trust me, I am not asking you to throw people under the bus or anything crazy no, like that. But go no, ahead. I know, I know exactly what you're saying. Of course I do, because uh, I, I do mention that this is a different business than it was back then. But I also do this. I, I use matches um, and I use examples to demonstrate um, the good and the bad. And, and of course, uh, there was a treacherous time in the business when, uh, you know, like the eighties, it was like being at sea for, for 40 years. And all of a sudden, you know, walking on dry land and, and, and you say, Oh, everything's okay. Well, if you've been at sea for any length of time, you know, you're going to have good days and, and sunny days where everything's great and it's, it's smooth sailing. And then you're going to have the storms and you're going to have the, the tipping of the boat. And sometimes you're going to subside and, and, and sometimes you'll be drug under and, and, and don't know if you're ever going to make it to the surface. And, uh, 
there were many times like that over the years, not for, for, for a lot of people. And you don't want to get caught in that trap. You want to make sure that uh, you always know the course and stay on the road. Um, don't, don't lose your focus. And it was just the culture. Again, it was the business. It was the, the nature of it, I guess, uh, that carried over. And it took this long um, to, to get it to where it is today, where it's a healthier lifestyle. It's a healthier way to do things and smarter way to do things. And that goes, I think, uh, give a lot of credit to Triple H for his vision and uh, other people. Uh, realizing that times have changed, we ain't the carnies anymore. You know, come on in and you know, let's let's show them how how real this is. And I think again, that's good and bad because that's one of the elements missing is the fact that uh, you want your crazy people, you want your guys to be, you know, have, have fans wonder about you know, that guy, something, something's wrong with him. Your Dr. Jerry Grahams don't exist today because, again, uh, it, it's not the culture. It's not the world we live in. And uh, back then, when you had people uh, uh, like Chris and Tammy that you mentioned, um, it was easy to get lost. It was easy to fall into those traps, Tammy especially. I mean, you know, Jim Cornette used her when she was 18 in Smoky Mountain, and she was this cute little 18-year-old, and, and she knew she was cute, and she knew she was hot, and she knew she was desired, and she knew all these things. And she wasn't shy about it. She she had confidence, and you got to give her credit for it confidence and then she went to WWE and all of a sudden she's a star she's the most downloaded celebrity on AOL that's when the internet's taken off and and all of a sudden stars get in your eyes and uh, they can blind you and she got blinded Chris got blinded a lot of us got blinded and it happens um, there's there's no excuse for it except that you're you're in the lifestyle you're in the moment and it, you, you, you. We were living for today. We weren't. We didn't worry about tomorrow. We just, uh, we were living a hundred miles an hour uh, every minute of the day. And for people who don't understand that, there's no way to explain it. And I equate it again. I, I use a lot of analogies uh, because they make sense to me. Not not always to other people, but they make sense to me. If you never jumped out of a plane, I can tell you about it all day long, but I can't make you experience it. And it's it's like jumping out of a plane until you until you experience it and you go, oh, now I get it, or oh no, I never want to do that again. You know, I can't explain to you what it's like to to be twenty years old in Madison Square Garden and everybody chanting your name. And, you know, that's, that's a trip that, that no one can take unless they've been there. And uh, that was the case with Tammy and Chris started at a young age too. And, and all of a sudden um, he's living the dream. She's living the dream. And a lot of us, we, we were living our dreams and going out working in front of crowds and, uh, Christ, I never in a million years thought I would ever wrestle in Madison Square Garden just because I was too small, just because I was always told, dude, that's a big man's territory. And there we are. 
so how do you balance that? What do you do once it's over? <laughs> you keep trying to chase it. You keep trying to chase that feeling until you get to the point where you just become numb, I guess. And, and I tell people that. I do. I explain that you don't want to fall into that trap. But our culture doesn't dictate that we live that way anymore. I mean, back then it was drug, sex, and rock and roll. Not so much anymore. Was there while you were teaming with with uh, I keep wanting to say Skip, but while while you were teaming with Chris Candido, was there anybody who tried to pull him aside and said, "Hey, look, you might want to watch what she's doing." There's these rumors, her and Shawn Michaels, and all this other crazy stuff. You know, hey, you got you got a bright career ahead of you. You might want to cool it, or was it just no one said anything? No, we we of course I I took Chris aside on a couple of occasions, but once again, um. <laughs> That was a very, that was a difficult time for me as well as a lot of other people. It was, uh, it was just, it, it was not a good place. I was not in a good place. Chris wasn't in a good place. Tammy wasn't, I don't think, in a healthy place. She, she just is Tammy. She's, she's one of those people um, who has this confidence and you're not going to shake her she, she just she's made of that cloth she knows uh, she she believes she she is a star and that's what it takes to be a star but when 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 you would talk to chris or when i would talk to chris um it, you, it, you don't want to take somebody and beat them over the head with the obvious and it was so obvious and and the one time <laughs> the one time that that we had an obvious event happen uh coming from the airport with some of the boys and i i went downstairs to the restaurant we, we got our own rooms obviously and chris and tammy got their room i went downstairs to the restaurant we got the hotel and chris is sitting there by himself and he's distraught obviously and I went over and talked to him, and then we went upstairs, and I talked to Tammy and him together. That was the last time, because it didn't go well. It didn't go well at all. So right then and there, uh, and this was after talking to him, not only in WWE, but in uh, Smoky Mountain, uh, that was the last time because of her reaction and she wasn't going to have anyone tell her what to do or what she needed to do. She knew what she needed to do, and I washed my hands of it, and uh, it was sad. <laughs> it, was, it was sad, but when you're, again, it goes with being lost and caught up in the moment. So people tried to help Chris, and people actually tried to help Tammy, but uh, unfortunately... Uh, it didn't work out. So I have uh, <clears throat> two more questions for you here, and I think again for taking this time. It's been incredible, one of the best we've ever done. Um, <clears throat> I'll tell you the truth. I mean, I've interviewed Bill Belichick. I've interviewed a lot of big names, but this is definitely uh, towards the top, no doubt about it. So two two questions to go for you, and I, th I thank you again. Was it hard to trust promoters after the Bret Hart incident? And who's you know? As a Bret Hart fan, for the, long, for the longest time, I always thought, you know, the Montreal screw job was, was all Vince McMahon's fault and the WWE's fault. How could they do that? And now as I get older and I study the business more and I, I talk to more and more professional athletes, 
I kind of understand why that entire thing in Montreal happened. You as a performer, you as a trainer, I'm not asking you to pick a side in that entire ordeal, but do you understand why it happened? And what do you think could have been done differently to avoid that entire debacle? Well, I certainly understand why it would happen. I, I certainly do. I, I was around seeing what was going on and seeing how things were actually played out in the back. It was uh, real tension. There was real hard feelings. There was real rivalry going on between Sean and Brett. Um, and and I, I, I got along with Brett. I, understood, I worked with Brett one time. But it was such a pleasure. It's like there, there were people uh, that you can work with and automatically gel. And there was no, we didn't call anything. We only knew the finish, but we went out there um, and you could, and did it the way you're supposed to do it. You felt it and you called it. And it was on TV too. We had two segments. It was, I, I like Brett. I caught, I know, I know where Brett's coming from. Brett, I'm more Brett than I am Sean. Uh, but I respect Sean too because Sean is a tremendous performer. He has that confidence that you must have. Again, that's that's real quick. You have to you have to have that, and every athlete has to have it. That's one thing that I I knew I was missing um, when I was a performer because I, I, I can't. Ex- I always say because, and then I stop myself. There is no because. I don't. I can't explain. It. I can't explain why I'm this way and not that. That way but the thing is i understand brett's side of the story but i also understand vince's side of the story because it's vince's company you had medusa take the championship the ladies belt and throw it in the trash live on tv now you have brett as the champion and he has creative control in this contract that you're trying to get out of and it's in montreal it's in canada where brett is a huge hero whether it's in brett's mind or not you have to admit brett hart was a hero to a lot of people in that country and sean had needled him sean had antagonized sean had poked and poked and poked and and there were some hard feelings over things that were done and said and and all this underlying current of tension and animosity that was going on. So it was a tough spot for everyone to be in. No doubt. No doubt it was. Um, But it it didn't. I I had been training guys prior to this and I was watching in the studio in Stanford when I went down. and as soon as it happened, I knew what happened. You, I could tell there was no doubt what happened. And I could only imagine because I knew who was there that night. And I could only imagine the tension and the, and the, the, the thickness of, of hard feelings in the air and what was going to happen. Um, I, I, I had no problem. I've never... Uh, I've never not trusted Vince when he has told me something because it's always come true. And he's told me a few things. Uh, but I also uh, could could understand Brett for not wanting to put Sean over. At the same time, it's a work, and it really is 
Vince's belt. It's Vince's title. It's not Brett's. Brett was given the title. It's it's a work. You have to think, shoot, but work. But but the reality is, Brett was going to go to another company, and it didn't make any sense to let Brett leave with the title even that night, and then and and trust Brett because there was too much sabotage going on back and forth back then. There was too much. Uh, mistrust, not between the boys necessarily, but between the companies and between uh, Bischoff and and Vince and and you know there, it was a heated battle. It was it was a, a battle for survival, and Vince did what he had to do. I think later on, when Brett really had time to analyze and think about it, he understood that. I, I that's just my assumption, but no, I had no problems. Uh, trusting someone if I trusted them, but but I think um, the natural uh, inclination is to is to not trust a wrestling promoter in in any sense of the word because they're they came from the carny days and that's where they were they were built up from and that's all they knew. But this was a new era. Vince was making things new and and he had made guys more money than they ever made before, and he made Brett a millionaire and. Uh, at the same time, you know, we look back, what, 30 years later or whatever it is, sorry, whatever it is, and you can see that there, there was this huge rivalry, not just on stage and in the ring, but backstage. I mean, it was it was always something constant, and, and Brett fought for what he believed in, and, and was it always the right thing to do? Well, for Brett it was, and, and for Sean always fought for what he believed in, and, and once again, was it, was it always the right thing to do? Well, you had two strong personalities you felt they were both right, and then you had Vince caught in the middle, but the reality is, it's Vince's company. It, it was his title. It was his name. It was everyone in the company who was depending on uh, whoever the champ was, because champion's the guy who, you know, was on top and leading the company and either uh, drawing the money, drawing the houses, or he wasn't. And um, because Brett felt so strongly, personally, about Sean, I think that uh, I don't want to say clouded his thinking, but it certainly affected his thinking, and and vice versa. You know, I mean, Vince did he lie? Did he did he do what he had to do in business? People can lie. I've come to learn that in over 40 years of being in the wrestling business. People aren't always going to tell you the truth. So you have to know how to decipher it. And you have to know how to navigate it. And you have to know what you're getting yourself into. It's not just wrestling. People are going to lie to you. And I think, again, Brett, looking back, understands that now when he's not in the moment and not emotionally uh, distraught and, and and hyped up on on that emotion, but uh, you know, I, I I understood what I was in for. I understood the the players I was dealing with whenever I dealt with Vince. And uh, so, to answer your question, uh, no, I, the, the, I've there have been a few promoters who've lied to me many many well on a few occasions, and and I still 
I, I navigated through it and I understood it. I just understood that was part of uh, the process and that was part of the business. And, it, and I, I think to this day it still is. Last question for you here today, and it's been an excellent interview. Thank you again. Um, just unbelievable is all I could say. So one last question. As a trainer with the WWF, you know, and, and it's funny because earlier in this interview, you know, we talked about USWA. There was a guy in the USWA. I'll, I'm going to say his name, and you're going to know who I'm talking about, and a lot of people, they probably won't. Flex Kavana. Flex Kavana. And I want people to go ahead and research Throw it into your Google search. Put in the name Flex Kavana. All right? Now, with that being said, who were some of the best athletes and best performers that you ever had the privilege of training in the WWF? Wow. Uh, well, certainly certainly Flex Kavana uh, <laughs> and certainly Kurt Angle. Yep. Um, I think, uh, man... Did you know Kurt Angle had it right away? Did you just know? Well, I here's what I knew when I locked up with Kurt. Um, he he knew how to lock up. In other words, when I explained it to him and, and I said, the first thing I said is, I have nothing to prove to you, so do not stretch me and do not <laughs> hurt me. So when we locked up and I explained, this is how we lock up. And we walked through it first. And the first time we did it live, when I was in, in the studio, of course, he, he locked up the right way. And when I, when I went to maneuver him and push him and, and put him where I wanted him to be, he went right with it. So, uh, he had, he had something and, and it took him, uh, I, I think no time to actually, uh, get in there and, and apply what he knew. He had a love for it. I mean, once he, you know, I, I think his first experience was ECW and once he, saw something else and uh, and and it was explained to him that ECW is completely different than, than what we do over here yeah. and uh I think once he, he did he, he got that but but I, I you know it's been gosh so long mark henry was was part of the first class with with those three you know with rock and mark and akam albrick mm -hmm. who was brockus and brockus only had two vignettes and never made it tv but i would work with those guys on the road under the mask as dr x and uh that was my job in the early days of training there, you know, train with them in the studio that would take them on TV or take them on the road. And I was going on the road, uh, and getting my concussions from Brock is not going to live in hell out of me. So, uh, but those, those, obviously the top guys would have to be the rock and Kurt. Um, of course, edge and Christian came through our truth came through, uh, but they had some previous experience too. Uh, Batista, Batista had had come through uh, and trained a little bit with Alpha, I believe, in, in uh, Allentown. But he 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 came through and he had some uh, some natural ability. Randy Orton obviously had been training in St. Louis before he got to us, but he was doing the outlaw indie stuff, and his dad wasn't real happy about that either and, and and randy told me that he says you know dad always tells me i don't need to be working with these guys because i'm going to pick up bad habits but he he was a smooth guy too randy knew from the beginning he had this natural 
ability to react and and that's really what we do in the ring is that is we react we're not acting so uh but everybody else i i mean i you, you i would have to go through the list of names but there was a lot of great athletes came through some some had it and some once again get in there and think oh it's it's not what i thought it was and uh <laughs> i don't know if i really want to do this or not so who surprised you the most like, who did you see, like, come through maybe day one, day two, even week one, week two, and you thought, like, I don't think this guy's going to pan out, and then you ended up being a star? Well, I got to tell you, um, Drew McIntyre, because he, he's the one that really comes comes to my mind, uh, and, I, and I, 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 I feel I, I have a soft spot in my heart for Drew, especially because here is his opportunity at WrestleMania to wrestle Brock Lesnar in yeah. Tampa, and oh, my God. <laughs> God, what happened? The world went absolutely nuts. But Drew, in the beginning, was so young when he came to FCW, and so uh, uh, not not awkward, but certainly had a method to the way he thought it should go. And but he was he was very coachable and teachable, and. Um, when he went for his first time and his first run in WWE, whatever it was now at that time, it's called WWE. <laughs> he, um, uh, we really thought, okay, if if he if he catches on, um, it will be because someone has sat him down or or taken a road trip with him and explained it to him. We explained it to him. But but we're as coaches, and we we weren't on the road all the time. What you really need to get better is someone who's there watching your match night after night, talking to you, not just about your match, but what you need to do and what you should try the next night. So uh, we saw that, and I think Drew was was too young again i talk about jumping out of a plane we can talk about experience you just can't teach it and he needed some experience under his belt so when he when vince made him the chosen one that first time um some people will rise to the occasion and seek mentors out backstage and some people don't necessarily know uh the next step and he he was on the road and, and um, I don't know who he was talking to back then, but but he he was I was pleasantly surprised when he I would see Drew over the years at these various conventions and we'd always speak and he would always explain what he's doing next and he was getting his reps in he was going to these different promotions he was learning from different people he would run into people again he would talk to them and uh and show them he had made improvements and and always asked questions uh and he 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 improved and he got to the point where he is now and he understands i tell i can listen to him in his promos and his interviews he has a different uh, swagger about him he has a different attitude and so i would say right off the bat drew comes to mind it's a guy who has impressed me and uh, surprised me uh pleasantly the most well this has been phenomenal uh like i said in the history of my career i've interviewed i mean i can't tell you how many big names you know from um 
here in Cleveland area based, but basically, you know, Bill Belichick and and Tito Santana and just on and on down the line. But no doubt about it, this has definitely been one of my favorites. So I wanted to thank you uh, for everybody here at Keelan Sports for coming on today, talking about your excellent career as the executioner. That was so much fun. But uh... <laughs> yeah, that was one of my favorite times. <laughs> about the costume and the mask and the <laughs> fitting i i've got stories that'll go in for days about the fitting man it was great you know and my, my wife makes fun of me because i i study this stuff and uh i've been watching wrestling for 35 years i'm 38 i've been watching this since i've been three like vividly remember stuff you know i study the crap out of everything and you know, I'm getting ready for this interview last night, and and I'm with one of my coworkers, and he's like, "Oh, yeah, he 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 did the Executioner gimmick with Mankind and Undertaker." I'm like, "I'm like, no, he didn't." I'm like, "I'm positive he didn't." And like, this guy sold me on this. I'm like, "I'm like, are you sure?" He's like, "Yeah." I'm like, "Okay." He didn't. You didn't look it up. No, because I'm like, all right. I'm like, I should have just looked it up. Yeah, but okay. <laughs> Well, you can thank him for that now yeah. because, yeah, Terry Gordy was, uh, you know, we, we, Terry and I looked a lot alike except he was about six foot four and, <laughs> and I, and I'm not. And, uh, but we had the same kind of hair though. And with the mask, I guess it would be hard to, I guess. Hard to tell. Mm. Unbelievable. You know, I, I get it. I get an interview. I get this interview that I've coveted for so long. And within seconds, I put my foot in my damn mouth. But hey, no, it's all good, man. <laughs> I, I think that's part of the uh, learning experience. So yeah, it's all good. All good. Hey, thank you, though. Honestly, I'm going to let you get about your day. Um, you know, Glenn Jacobs, Kane, uh, amazing. Uh, we'll try to talk to him one day, too. I mean, I know he's the mayor, so he's got a lot of stuff on his plate. But uh, I would definitely love to talk to him as well. And, you know, is there anything, last things you want to say? Want to go ahead and plug that school one more time? Yeah, I just want to let everybody know if uh, you are interested in uh, just learning the art of professional wrestling or, or, or taking that step, uh, you can find out. Everything you need to know at jpwrestlingacademy.com. We have uh, information how to apply. We have uh, a website or a uh, email as well. And uh, check us out. I mean, it's, it's we have a Patreon uh, channel as well. And uh, uh, that's it, man. Uh, jpwrestlingacademy.com for all your uh, wrestling needs, if you will. Hey, and real quick, too, guys, listen, you know, listening at home real quick, a few weeks ago, one of their female uh, talents, I was told, at least, again, this is going off what Jim Ross said, was uh, performed in AEW, that young lady. Did she not? About a month ago? That would be Kenzie uh, Page, yes. Yeah. Uh, Kenzie started wrestling at 14 years old. She came to us at 16. Her dad runs KFW. Uh, it is the... I don't know what the K... It used to be Ken Folk Wrestling. Now it's uh, something else. Uh, but... but uh, yeah, she she wrestles in AEW now. She's got she did another spot last week. Also, Emily Anzulis uh, trained with us uh, last summer, and she is now in NXT. She was on the Rocks Titan Games. She won the first Titan Games, and she came to us. She's from Knoxville. She came and trained with us for twelve weeks, and um, she got signed with. Uh, WWE or NXT, and she's down in Orlando now. Shortly after she got there, uh, the world went crazy and shut down. And but she she's still down there and uh, um, doing what she can do. So our we, we've had 
the first year we had uh, fortunate enough to use the guys as extras two weeks in a row and Ron Smackdown. So um, we're, we're, we're moving along at a pretty good pace. So if you, if again, if anyone is interested in learning the art of professional wrestling or just asking a question, JP wrestling academy.com has all the links you need. Absolutely love that. Learning the art of professional wrestling. At 38 years old, that's still what I call it. I refuse to call it sports entertainment. It is professional wrestling. Dr. Tom Pritchard, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And I want everybody to know at home, we're going to put a link for that website in the actual article. So when you click on this podcast, there's going to be a link that will take you right to that website. Sir, you have a great day. Thank you for taking so much time with us today. And hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. I'll get all my facts straight next time. Yeah, thanks, Vince. I look forward to it. Oh, no problem. Have a great day. You too. Bye now. So that was Dr. Tom Pritchard. Uh, definitely check out his school, him and Glenn Jacobs. You can know him as Kane. And we will put a link in that as well uh, in the article. Wow. <laughs> it's all I could say. Uh, our interviews tend to go 20 to 25 minutes. This one went 90 um, and I was not going to stop him because that was incredible. Uh, this, this will easily go down as a top five. Uh, tremendous stuff. Uh, I want to thank him again. want to thank you for listening, and we'll talk to everybody soon. If you want to get a hold of me, it's Vince McKee at CoachVin14 at Yahoo.com.